Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than reading the Today paper. Do you remember that, folks? Blue Top. My name's Ash Rose, your host, your guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. And I'm back with my old mucker. I can see his face again. The internet has worked. We've managed to fix our schedule so we're in the same time zone or whatever. Ed Chambers of the Football Tavern. How the devil are you, sir? I am very well, Ash. It's uh, it's great to be it's great to be back. It's great to be recording AK nineties again. Uh, looking forward to today's episode, obviously. And uh, you know, you've obviously been uh, you know in a dive straight in here. You've been very busy. Uh, you know, we mentioned last time about your uh, writing for the, uh, the mail the mail online, your dalliance with them, and um, and how that's going. Obviously, last time I I did read out some uh, interesting feedback that you'd received from somebody about. Your uh, your report on uh, uh, Harlem, but, Harlem um, yeah. yeah, and um, but uh, yeah. So yesterday, you uh, actually sent me on WhatsApp. You sent me your England World Cup team of all time. Is that the best yeah, way of, of, of saying it? And and you you said feedback welcome. So I thought rather than give it to you, I thought why don't we share it with the uh, with the uh, with the, the you know the AK nineties population. So my mum and your so, <laughs> and um, Stu's feet flat. Stu, Stu, see you next week. You'll be on next week. Um, so, um, just quickly reading reading the team. You had uh, I would read it quickly. You had uh, Banks in goal uh, from sixty six, obviously, and seventy. Uh, right back George Cohen. Left back was Ashley Cole. Uh, at centre half, you had. Bobby Moore and Terry Butcher. I'm flicking through the account here as quickly as possible. Well, it's Gaza, Beckham and Bobby yeah. Midfield. And Bobby then, Midfield uh, and then Harry Kane, Alan Shearer? No, Lineker no. and Hurst. I do apologise. Yeah, my, my phone isn't working as fast as I'd like it to. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, so England have won the World Cup once. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're of an age where we didn't get to see that. I think Banks and Cohen are probably, you know, probably sound sound well, choices. You know really, Cohen was the hardest right back. Was in quite contrast to the twenty twenty yeah. era of England. Right mm-hmm. back has kind of well. Let me pre before you give me the feedback. Before <laughs> yeah, I slaughter you, is that what you're going to say? You slaughtered me. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah, thinking yeah. behind this, and if people read comments, I don't know. You know, the Daily Mail comments are there. Right? You could do a podcast about them yourself, but yeah. Like the, the three things to focus on is that this was World Cups only. That there are a lot, of, lot of things that have been said. That where's Brian Robson? Why have you got David Beckham? Where's Wayne yeah. Rooney? Like because they all like Brian Robson was injured for three World Cups. Like he played like he scored that famous goal eighty two after twenty seven seconds. Then was injured, injured in eighty six, injured in ninety. Gone. No Robson. Don't give me Wayne Rooney. He scored one World Cup goal and is most overrated England footballer of all time. So no Wayne Rooney. Oh, anyway, <laughs> that's yeah. for another show. But yeah, so. Yeah. It was World Cups only. And also, it was not meant to be a team that would actually play. So I know having a midfield of Gaza, Cholton and Beckham leave me severely open. Like, you need a Paul Ince or you need a... Mm. But I was going purely on their performances at World Cup finals in an 11. So, it's, so it's just, just on that just on that point then, well, so they, I was very controversial here. David Beckham at World Cups, OK? So David Beckham got England to the world cup in fact as we're recording this as we're recording on this day yeah Yeah. so um blimey wow that was 21 years ago incredible um so 
I've lost my train of thought because of that. Um, so, yeah, so so Beckham, but he was injured in 2002, really, wasn't he? He still played well. He still called the goal against Argentina, but maybe he wasn't quite at his best. Very similar 2006. Um, but, you know, as you say, you could have had um, somebody else in there, maybe, you know, for the impact, um, taking it back to the 90s, you know, David Platt, yeah. um, for yeah. example, you could have had somebody like that. Uh, I am going to sort of pick up on Harry Kane just for a moment because I know why you've picked Harry Kane because obviously you knowing you personally uh, you're a big fan of yeah, Harry Kane yeah. as am I actually he's a very very good footballer but I know he was the top goal scorer I know that before you jump down my throat but maybe the teams that he scored the goals against I think you would expect him to score those goals against especially Panama I think it was I think there may have been other options that you could have gone down that line. I mean, especially with 66, Alan Ball, for example, was apparently a fabulous, fabulous footballer. But I suppose when you're right, I mean, the England manager's job is actually, I still think is one of the hardest jobs in the world, let alone in sport, because you've got 30 million plus people basically appraising your job all of the time. Obviously, this isn't like that. But when you are doing this sort of thing... 30 million people haven't read that article. Well, I don't want to disappoint you, but probably not. Um, but when you're writing an article like that, you're never going to please anybody. No, um, and, that's, and that's the whole beauty of it. It, it throws out a question. So, there, I mean, I'm looking at it going, like, where's Alan Ball? And someone might say, you know, where's... You know, and, and where's, where's Peter Beardsley? Or, yeah. do you know, you know, that kind of, yeah, where's Chris Waddle? Or whatever. And and it's um, but you, if we're being brutally honest, they're the only team that yeah. won the World Cup. So really, yeah, ex- exactly, ex- exactly. But yeah, I found I found it an interesting. I did find it an interesting article. So it's good to see that you've you've got that you've got that out there. Um, I thought it was I thought it was interesting, but yeah, I'm not I'm not sure I would have picked Harry Kane based on that one World well, Cup. I defence Harry Kane, and we'll, we'll move on a bit because this is a little bit self indulgent as well. But yeah. It, Yes, I agree. He scored a hat against Panama, but I, I think people overlook the goals against Tunisia. Like we, we could have started that World Cup with a draw. He scored a ninety-first minute win. Yes. I know yes. they're Tunisia, but we could have started that World Cup with a draw. Yeah, kind of like you know, same old England would that have you know? I'm not saying we would have not got to the semi-final, but I just think there there are slightly like he scored the penalty as well against um, Colombia in the second round yeah. penalty, but he still got score. And I, I realised that you know his, his hat trick was probably quite fortuitous as well against Panama because one of them hit the back of his leg didn't it and go in I think yeah. as well and he was by the end of the tournament he was knackered he was you know yeah. he, was he was a waste of a space we get that but yeah. I just felt yeah and also it was a nod to 2018 because we did get to the semi-finals yes the only of kind of you know there was a good they were a good team but they weren't I don't think there was other than Kane there wasn't an individual performing yeah Kieran Trippier had a good tournament but I don't think he had a better tournament than probably Ray um George, I was going to Rayco and George Cohen at 660. Yeah. So it's all subjective. Yeah. It's completely, and it's made to, it's an article made to people to get talking. As long as I don't get facts wrong, that's what you, you know, when those things, when you do that, as long as you don't go, oh God, I, I missed the fact that he didn't do that. That's fine. Yeah. I don't mind people, you know, saying that. Because, yeah, and on a, on a similar note, the, um, so on um, Twitter, the FTLO, LOL podcast, I'll get my words out. They have just, they're about to release their 200th episode. Right. And they're asking sort of various people on Twitter to give their best World Cup team of all time. So that's even harder. Yeah, so I, I've been asked to do that. And I, I was, um, I, start, I started to write down the team yesterday, right? And this is how my brain works. 
are there any rules or is it completely open? Uh, there are uh, certain rules. You can only pick two, I think, from each nation, if yeah. I remember rightly. I started to write names down. I was like, yeah, they played in Italian 90. Yeah, they played in Italian 90. There was almost like I'd, I'd sort of written a team and thought, I've basically picked about eight players from Italian 90, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I needed to sort of diversify. I don't think it was what they were looking for. Who um, was so the first player that came to your mind? Do you know what? The first player that came to my mind, um, first two players randomly were Lota Mateus and Andreas Bremer. Oh, okay, from 90. Not yeah. not Paul Gascoigne. I don't yeah. know why. Well, I don't know was, why. My, this won't come as a surprise to you, but it probably will to some people listening. That mine was Davo Shuka, but I just thought of yeah. 98 yeah. or because I love him. Yeah, exactly. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I'll there you go. I'll have a go at that. Yeah, that's a difficult one because there's, what do you base it on? Like, yeah, exactly. You, have to have won it. you kind of think if you're doing a World Cup 11, they kind of mm. have everyone in it. It's kind of have to won it. Yeah. But that rules out yeah. Shuka, that rules out Gascoigne, that rules out yeah. Baggio. Oh, no, no Baggio yeah. didn't win it, did he? So, no. no exa- yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. So, uh, yeah, good I'll probably, we'll probably be, t- we'll probably, we'll probably doing the podcast next week and you'll ask me how I got on with the table. I'm like, I'm still writing it down. To be yeah. perfectly honest. Uh, speaking of next week, we, we, little spoiler alert, we are at the moment, unless in, in timing or internet decide to fail us, um, we're going to look at fantasy football. So we, there is a reason why we haven't really talked about it on this episode. Because I know the first episode dropped last week. Um, I think it's, is it tonight? Yeah, it's, as we record the, the second yeah. episode. Um it, it, I, you know, quickly because we'll go into it next week we, and hopefully we'll have Stu on the, on the as well because we'll talk about fantasy football before and we'll talk about the new one I think they did a good job and I say that in a very surprising tone yeah I, I was um, you and I were you know you and I were texting before um, beforehand you, got, well, you, you weren't even going to watch it I wasn't I wasn't going to watch it and then I um, recorded it and then I watched it but yeah I watched it about quarters to 11 something like that and i was i was expecting it to be as someone wrote on twitter i think um sort of car crash tv yeah. really that it was it was going to be a very very poor imitation um i found i found myself laughing uh at least twice within the first opening three or four minutes and i thought well if i've laughed that you know that quickly then this has got something in it plus you know matt lucas is very very experienced in you know in the in the tv world he's yeah. probably He's probably not going to take a project like that on at a whim. It's going to be decent. It's you know, it's in, it's going to be decent. And um, but also, I I found that when when I was when I started to watch it, I thought they have to do they they can't pretend that this is new. They can't pretend that this oh, yeah. show is new. Yeah, and that it, they have to do nods to the past. And within the opening credits, it was like "Where's Frank and David," which I thought was very very cleverly done. And then like there was a clip back to the late 90s which Matt Lucas was actually in as well when he was sitting in the audience uh, of the show and I, I just thought that was very clever um, I think the guests helped I think um, Sally Lindsay is very sort of um, you know she's very um, personable you know she's you know, she's just a very nice woman she comes across as a very nice woman and you know obviously I'm talking too much about it now because we're talking about it next week but Russell um, but Russell Howard knows his knows his football as well um so i think he was a good guest so yeah enjoyed it yeah, yeah. Enjoyed it. I, I think last point before we actually go a bit more into it next week but i i thought it'd be more fluffy that's what my yeah. worry was i thought it'd be a bit like a tape not that fantasy football was controversial there are elements to it that they wouldn't they can't touch but it was it lived on some sort of small edge and i thought that might mm-hmm. be i think the fact that they pretty much kept the same theme tune kept the same titles Phoenix yeah. flames yeah. hellos we'll talk about it but no i think they've done they did a very good job. Um, but anything else you've noticed this weekend that has a bit um, of 90s flavour for us? 
from the 90s i've got two or three things actually um so uh so we don't we don't we never talk about politics i never talk about politics on my football tavern because it is probably one of the most diverse subjects that yeah. you just yeah you could just find yourself going down all sorts of streets and avenues that you just don't want to go down when no you talk politics, about no it. religion that's what we say yeah, yeah, absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah and but i think we, we've got to give a nod to the two m people who uh <laughs> who were featured on the uh the uh, Conservative uh, conference yesterday as Liz Truss walked onto the stage to moving on up, which ironically, uh, the writer of that song uh, was on the BBC website saying that he was really disappointed that it was used. Uh, And then he went, and the irony is, he goes, it's about someone packing their bags and effing off. And I was like, oh, right, okay. Um, so that's what the song's about. But she used it, and there she was walking on to, to moving on. Well, up. someone leaked it, didn't they? As we'll talk about leaks later in, in today's yeah. episode. But and said it's a '90s classic, and yeah, you know, there lots of humorous replies on Twitter about yeah. it being. Yeah. But is yeah. there any more middle of the road '90s yeah. band than the M? I mean, I don't mind a bit of MP people. I don't own any of it, but. No. They're very middle of the road, aren't they? Kind of yeah. like, okay, M people. She didn't bust onto Return of the Mac and start, you know, giving it's, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was. I don't think it was ever going to be anything sort of slightly controversial. But <laughs> yeah, it was. It was very. Um, yeah, as you say, it was very, very uh, middle of the road. But I also sort of chuckled at the fact that I think I read that Heather Small, who sang the song for M people, I think her son now grown up, of course, is a Labour councillor. Yeah, so he was annoyed as well yeah. <laughs> that his mum's song was being used. No, so, uh, yeah, all in all, uh, yeah, so, so is that, uh, obviously, fantasy football that we yeah, talked about. She could have come out to Mbop, couldn't she? And then you really wouldn't have voted for her. No, I would. No, I would have. Um, I would have left at that point. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and uh, so two other things quickly. Um, we do have um, a few listeners that are uh, fans of Oldham. So I suppose we should mention that uh, obviously this happened a couple of weeks ago but their new management team is uh, Big Dave Unsworth Big Dave uh, Big Dave Mr Penalty himself and uh, you know he, he used to love a penalty didn't he Dave Unsworth in the 90s and the, also um, Premier League's record know, defending goal scorer until John Terry took over I think I think he was yeah I think he was and and um, obviously Oldham's good for him um, because he can still get home um, because anything <laughs> south yeah, of okay. any, anything south of sort of anywhere of the northwest, and he's not going to work there um, you know, with a nod to his one week at Aston Villa, and also his assistant. You know, who's his assistant manager? No, I don't. I was going to. I was waiting for you to say who is his assistant. Um, Franny Jeffers. My word. Yeah, Franny Jeffers, formerly of the venue nightclub where we used to go to in yeah. the uh, early two thousands, when he was often there when he was at Cheltenham. And um, but um, yes, yeah, so there was that. And then lastly, um, but by no means least. The clip that we saw on Twitter, which I, we shared with Satin uh, yesterday, was with uh, <laughs> the neighbours clip where the uh, the guy from the Pet Shop Boys turns up in Ramsey Random. Street, rand- randomly looking for a recording studio, and is obviously lost in a in the uh, Erinsborough yeah. su- suburbs. And then Annalise, of course, comes out, and um, you know it was just nice to see Annalise again. <laughs> Not that it wasn't nice to see Helen Daniels and Marlene uh, okay, either. Yeah. Either, but Marley's um, acting's not aged well. <laughs> no, <laughs> God, bless her. God bless her. And well, he- I mean, Helen Daniels still looks a bit like a ghost figure anyway, but yeah. um, yeah. And what was funny about that is when we were kids, we thought those women were like ancient, 
I think they're probably about the same age that our parents roughly are now, but they yeah. were kind of portrayed as really ancient. Yeah, they do. They do, definitely. Um, so, yeah, that was... Yeah, that was Why would you go down a cul-de-sac looking for a... Because I always because it's a cul-de-sac, isn't it, Randy? It is a cul-de-sac, yeah. Why would you go looking for a cul-de-sac? I mean, it's such a random... Like, well, I, there's, yeah. there's a store, I'm sure there's a Neighbours podcast out there that know the store. Yeah. Like yeah, it was like always being yeah, but, but yeah, Annalise came out complaining that she didn't get to see them because she's yeah. got all of their CDs, which in the mid nineties was quite a good um, feat if you had all of the CDs. So, yeah. uh, so uh, yeah, so that's my uh, that's my uh, two or three things for the nineties this week. We need we need a jingle, don't we? And it adds this week in the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could do. Uh, well, perhaps we'll have perhaps we'll have moving on up, which means I've got to pack my bags and um, F off. Yeah. No in people. I'm not, no, it's not, it's not like Scatman John, maybe. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. uh, let's get to today's episode here. We're talking, as we said at the top of there, I mentioned newspapers. We're talking to um, kind of a bit, a massive name from that era and also into the next one from, from the journalistic world. Paul McCarthy, he's got a new book out as well. We'll be chatting to him. Quite an interesting take because we never really delved into kind of the media side of the 90s which is a very different beast than it is today so yeah looking forward to this one ed i I am actually yeah i'm I'm sort of um i'm fascinated by the um the journalist side of the the night or just in general actually but the 90s in particular because of how how football changed so how um you know how how did the journalists adapt to that as well? Yeah. Because obviously, it's probably a big change for them as well. So, so yeah, I'm look, I'm looking forward to meeting Paul. He's obviously got um, vast experience in in you know the newspaper world, and he was on um, he was on Sky as well, if I remember rightly, for the the sort of journalist yeah. show. Um, that I think he was a presenter actually for a little while. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to that. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, let's get stuck in then, and we'll talk about the new book. And he's a West Ham fan, so we'll touch on a bit of the Hammers from the '90s as well. Um, after this. Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Uh, joining us now then, real pleasure actually to, to speak to this guy. We've never really delved into this side of football in the 90s, which bearing in mind we've been going for, what, seven years, 150-odd episodes or whatever it is. Um, it's a treat to do something brand, brand new. So this is really good. We've got a, a journalistic pioneer, I'm going to call him, from the 90s. He's now in, in squad of in a different profession, but something we're going to get into later on. He's got a new book out as well. We're going to get into that. But Paul McCarthy, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. Great to be here. Pleasure to be here. Um, absolutely delighted. Anything to do with the 90s? I'm not, sure, <laughs> I'm not sure how much of a pioneer I was, but uh, it's very kind of you to say. Oh, well, yeah. You're in our wheelhouse in the 90s as well. So, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll get you. Before we talk about, you obviously got the new book out and what you did, and kind of your role and what you sort of covered in the 1990s. Um, that's that's bring the fan out in you, first of all. We, you know, we It's quite well known you're a West Ham fan. And as you're a newbie on the show, we always ask a couple of questions like a 90s cv we call it so first question paul your favorite west ham player from the 1990s uh i've got two really um and i was always a sucker for anybody who came through the ranks uh, at west ham and i saw both of these uh god it makes me feel sound and feel so old i saw both of these as 14 15 16 year olds and that's rio ferdinand and joe cole yeah um rio 
uh, five years uh, in the 90s at West Ham um, before he moved on to uh, to Leeds. Um, just a magnificent player. I think you could have played him in any position across the back four. Um, he was a beautiful holding midfielder even before they became um, popular. Uh, passing, uh, exemplary, um, never really, honestly, the, the, my greatest, uh, the greatest pain and disappointment was that Manchester United and Sir Alex Ferguson, and who am I to quibble with him, just played Rio as an almost straight up and down centre-half when he had so, so much more to his game, bringing the ball out, um, passing, his range of passing, his vision was yeah. exemplary. Um, and he was just so calm and just so cool. Uh, I, I loved watching him. I never really saw, I never saw Bobby Moore in his pomp. I only really remember him from his, the latter, the last days at West Ham and then when he moved on to Fulham in the mid, in the mid 70s. But my dad uh, tells me that he's as close to Bobby Moore as he's ever okay. seen. Yeah. And Joe Cole, again, saw him come through. I think I'm right in saying he went straight from the youth team to the first team, didn't play a reserve match. And, uh, uh, if we're talking about the 90s, probably only he made his debut in 98 for, for West Ham. But he was just a beautiful player. Oh, it's just wonderful. Just fizzing with energy, with just verve, with the kind of charisma that when he came into the team, lifted the team, um, and which is amazing for a teenager. And I just think he was a, he was a great player. I was really gutted when he went to Chelsea, but I could understand exactly why. Ed, we don't really talk about those two as much because see, the, their careers were so established in the next decade, but we forget mm-hmm. how early they came in. Yeah, they both came in. You know, they both came, basically they both came in as kids. You know, yeah. Joe, Joe especially. It was just everybody was talking about everybody was talking about him. And, you know, even as a when I saw him as a 14, 15 year old in um, in West Ham Youth Cup, uh, youth matches and F, the FA Youth Cup, just head and shoulders above anything else around at that time. And I don't just mean at West Ham, but I mean in the country. In Manchester United, I think, tried to buy him before it even made his West Ham debut. Yeah, I mean, um, we uh, we were fortunate enough, Paul, to have uh, Glenn Hoddle on the show. Um, yeah. Probably about 12 months ago now, actually. And um, Glenn actually talked about Rio. And Glenn was actually saying that, obviously, his you know career with England, uh, you know, Glenn's career with England was obviously cut short for reasons yeah. various. Yeah. Um, but he said that had he stayed as England manager and maybe headed towards Euro 2000, 2002 World Cup, he would have used Rio as in the middle of the back three, bringing the ball out. And then way um, Glenn, the way Glenn played when he yeah, was with Swindon and Chelsea. Absolutely. So, so Ferdinand was going to be that, but not at, towards the end of his career, as in from a young age. And as you were saying there, I agree with you. I think Ferguson... Um, you know, I mean, who are we to argue with a great man, as you said, but, it, you know, he used him as an out-and-out centre-half when, yeah. as you say, he had so many other qualities. And again, yeah, Joe, Joe Cole is not a figure that we've talked about too much on this because he's more late 90s to early 2000s. But the talent, that the natural talent that that boy was born with is incredible. Someone like Frank Lampard worked and worked and worked at his game. Um, and Joe Cole was just born instantly with that talent and you could tell like you say the youth games and stuff I think there was a game against was it Coventry or something in the late 90s I think in the UFA Youth Cup and they it was on Sky and, and Joe Cole just ran the show he was absolutely I, was 90, I, 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 I may be wrong I think it was 90, 97 
Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, he made his he made his first team debut for yeah. uh, West Ham in '98. Yeah, he's, he's, he was some he was some some talent. Yeah, absolutely yeah, great. Pip as well of him going. I think it's gone around Twitter at times. I think it's like a youth team. It wasn't on Sky, but it's like someone's filmed it on an old video yeah. camera of him in a game. Um, and he's just head and shoulders. He's obviously but it, it, it becomes it becomes it becomes legend. And I you know I know exactly the clip you're talking about. Yeah. And Wayne Rooney had a similar one. He was in the. Um, I think he was he was playing for uh, Everton in the FA Youth Cup. It might have been the final. It might have been the semi final. They were playing against Spurs, and he's taken a free kick about thirty yards out. And I was, listen, sorry to deviate, but this this is it yeah. was just a brilliant thing. Um, he takes a free kick about um, uh, about thirty yards out. He hits it with his right foot. It hits the wall. It comes straight back to him on his left foot, and he volleys it in from thirty yards. And it's just. Unbelievable! I think we might just scrape that in because I think that was 1999. If oh, I was, yeah. we might, we can, we might, we, we just get away with that. One. Yeah. The reason why I've gone for Joe and Rio as my two favourite West Ham players of the of that era of that decade, if you like, the 90s, is there wasn't really too much to shout about for West Ham fans <laughs> in <laughs> the uh, yeah, in the early in, certainly in the early not in the early yeah. early part of that decade. Yeah, I always when I think you know you figure the Redknapp era, don't you? And then you think of things like Danny and Mark Boogers and kind of that kind of Mark rad- Boogers went mad in a caravan at Canvey yeah, Island, yeah. I think. Yeah, Florin <laughs> Radichoyu. I always think of Florin yeah, Radichoyu. Yeah, Florin Radichoyu, Ilya Dumitrescu. Um, yeah, was it Radichoyu went? Uh, I think he went shopping in Selfridges rather than play a League Cup game for West Ham. <laughs> that probably probably some that probably sums up West Ham's plight in the yeah. in the nineties. Although, as a QPR fan, Paul, we always think of the 90s as when you you got Trevor Sinclair from us and yeah. in return, you kindly gave us a kind of past their best, Keith Rowland and Ian yeah. Gowrie. So we're always thanking yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> they're, well, you know, they're, there you go. Sounds like a fair trade to me. Yeah, we did get Tim Breaker as well, who did, who did all right. Yeah, Tim, <laughs> yeah, Tim Breaker. I mean, my other my other player from the 90s um, for West Ham was... Uh, was was Julian Dix and yeah, probably yeah. probably just for infamous reasons rather yeah. than anything that anything that he uh, that he truly bought in terms of um, I you know I think it's unfair he was he was a very good defender but you know it it was it you 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 were hope you knew he was always going to have a flare up or a mistake in him and you just hoped it was in the warm up yeah um, outside of Upton Park then Paul who who did you enjoy watching and I assume you probably would have seen this person in in person as well watching him live who, who was your player of the 90s well it's, it's a toss-up between two um you were very kind uh, to mention the book um fever pitch the rise of the Premier League let's get a plug in now um and Alan Shearer <laughs> Alan Shearer wrote the uh wrote the foreword to it um and I was I said very fortunate to see every single one of Alan Shearer's debuts. So his debut for uh, Southampton when he got a hat trick against yeah. Arsenal, who I think were the champions at the time, and absolutely destroyed them. So his debut for Blackburn in ninety four. Ninety two. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Whatever, whatever it was. I so saw his debut for Blackburn. Against he got Palace, two yeah. against two against Palace. So his debut for England in ninety two when he scored against France. Yeah. And I saw his debut for Newcastle when he uh, when he moved up to the northeast. Um, just a phenomenal player. I mean, we're talking about Erling Haaland now, and in the same breath as Alan Shearer, um, and they probably deserve to be mentioned alongside each other. Shearer was just a phenomenal striker. Just, I saw him come up. I was without going back to all my yesterdays. 
I, I played at Southampton and Shearer was a couple of years below me at Southampton. And even then, he would come down from uh, it would come down from the northeast and join in training sessions during the school holidays. And even then, it was like this guy is astonishing. Everybody was everybody was talking about him, and you could see why he was he was a man before he was, he was a man even at the age of 14, 15. Physically, yeah. the determination, the power, everything. So yes, yeah, so Alan Shearer would um, Alan Shearer would certainly be one of them, but. I have to say my favourite player of the 90s was Teddy Sheringham. Oh, OK. Interesting. He, um, yeah, and he, yeah. you know, he had a, he had a spell at, at, West, yeah. at West Ham towards the end of his end of his career. Um, but his his days, um, his days at Millwall with Cascarino um, in the very early in the very early 90s, I was a um, I started my the main part of my uh, reporting career at a paper called the South London Press. Yeah, where yeah. at the time when I joined in 88, uh, I think we had four teams in the old first division, Millwall, Palace, Wimbledon, who I covered, and Charlton. Yeah. And so I, I saw a lot of South London football. Uh, I covered Wimbledon home and away, but it, I did see a, a lot of other games. Like if there was a midweek game down at the old den, I would go down and Sheringham and Cascarino were just the, the the telepathy between them was incredible and and the intelligence that Teddy had. I remember once writing a Spurs match report, a match report on Spurs at White Hart Lane, where I think my somewhere, whether it was my intro or second or third paragraph, uh, I basically said Teddy Sheringham should stop thinking he's Glenn Oddle and get his ass up front and score a few more goals. Um, <laughs> the next time we met. Uh, he had a few words to say, and we we it was quite funny. We had we had a few fallings out along the way. Me reporting him playing, we're roughly roughly the same age. I think he was born in '66, same as me. And um, I'd seen him sort of growing up, um, and I'd seen him develop into a fantastic player. And just the intelligence, uh, great pass. We talked about Rio as a good passer. You mentioned Glenn Hoddle was the best English player I ever saw uh, live, um, but Teddy was. A visionary he played the number 10 role before it was really part and parcel of English football. Uh, wonderful clinical finisher, um, just elegant in everything he did. It was, you know, never saw, never saw him get his, get his shorts or shirt dirty. So, uh, that probably tells you anything about him. Uh, yeah, and and I think he was a yeah, he was an, an absolutely fantastic player, didn't have the same uh, sort of goal scoring record as Shearer, obviously. Um, but made Shearer a much better player for England in the same way that Peter Beardsley did for Gary Lineker, I think. Ed, do you think we we appreciate showing him now more, Ed, than we probably did at the time growing in the night because of what the kind of player he is? Um, possibly. Uh, I'm kind of tempted to say no, actually, Ash. I think, um, I think a lot of people did appreciate Teddy at the time. And I think, yeah, I think maybe, you know, nostalgia-wise that they're, they're sort of... Uh, the sort of professional career grows in terms of how people look at it, perhaps. But I mean, sharing. I mean, Paul's picked. I mean, Paul's picked the SAS. So he's yeah, just two fantastic, true. two fantastic footballers there. And you know, um, you know, you and I are from the South London area, so we would have seen some of that um, growing up, perhaps. But Sheringham was a fabulous, um, fabulous footballer, uh, especially you know at Millwall. As Paul's saying that Paul's almost behind enemy lines, aren't you, Paul? Going uh, to uh, Millwall to do your match reports. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't was... actually match reporting. My match report right. was purely about Wimbledon. I joined, right. I joined yeah. in 80, 88, the year they won the cup. And right. So, but I would, you know, um, 
if there was a game in South London at, at Sellers or the old den mm-hmm. and then the new den, yeah, um, yeah, I would I would just go and watch because you just want to go and see football. And you know, as I say, four teams in the old first division before the Premier League came in '92. It yeah. was a it was a privilege to be able to see you know some great some great games. And Teddy Teddy wasn't the best player, but he was my favourite player. And I think you know that. If you ask me, my favourite player, Teddy, the best player, yeah. Shearer or Keane, um, Letizia, uh, yeah, just, uh, but Teddy was my favourite player. I, I imagine he appears, let's talk about the book, you mentioned it there, in, fe- in Fever Pitch, Rise of the Premier League, out now. Um, I, I was looking at it this morning on Amazon, I'm going to get myself a copy because I can't wait uh, to read it as well. It's, it's kind of in conjunction with the, the TV show we saw that was on, was it last year now? I think it was. Yeah, it was last year. Yeah. Last year it was, um, yeah, BBC three-part um, three series. Yeah. Uh, which, which, and the book kind of, there's a new series, there's a new series coming out later this oh, okay. year. Hundred percent sure when it's actually um, slated for uh, for transmission, um, and it was kind of the the book is kind of links the two series. So the 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 the, the BBC series went up to ninety nine and the treble yeah. winning season for United, and then this book goes beyond ninety nine up to about two thousand and four five. Oh, very when, interesting. When Roman Abramovich came and completely transformed the the face of English football, but the bulk of it, yeah, the bulk of it is from. 92, the start of the Premier League, and before, how did the Premier League start? Why did the Premier League start? And yeah, it uh, it was it was it was great fun. I was very I was very lucky that the the BBC and the production company, it was David Beckham's production company, which uh, which which put the show together. There were thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of words left on the cutting room floor. <laughs> They'd interviewed probably upwards of forty or fifty people, yeah. um, from from David Beckham downwards, really. I suppose if you if you're going downwards, uh, Eric Cantona, uh, Shearer, Kenny Dalglish, um, Martin Edwards, David Dean, just the you know the key figures in of of the '90s Premier League era, really. And much of it didn't make the screen, so it was all there mm-hmm. to be uh, to be filleted, if you like. And put together into you know um, best part of a hundred thousand words book. So I was very fortunate on that. But there were also chapters that weren't covered. Something close to my heart, being a, um, a former Wimbledon reporter, was the was the dalliance with going to Dublin, which was yeah yeah which, remember that which, yeah which didn't which didn't make the didn't make yeah. the show. And then we then a little bit later the rise of Leeds United and, and their demise. And I know that's outside the scope of this podcast, but it was just, you know, a fascinating time. How does a, how does a club go from being in the quarterfinals of the Champions League to being almost out of business three or four years later? You know, just very, you know, just really strange set of circumstances, very murky set of circumstances in terms of how they manipulated the, the financial products that were available but you know, just couldn't sustain it. And there also other, there are also things in the that you know. There's a chapter on Tony Adams, who again is exactly my age. I think we're born within sort of like two or three weeks of each other. Played against each other. He, he for Arsenal and me for Southampton a long time ago. Uh, and he was like just a giant, head and shoulders above anybody else our age. Just fantastic leader. And I, I and I. 
I think of Tony with great fondness. I think I've never seen a transformation in a single person. I don't just mean footballer, a yeah. single person than uh, than the, the, in, in Tony from 1996 onwards. Um, he could be, in his drinking days, boorish. He could be uh, rude. Yeah. He could be the worst kind of drunk to be around. Um one of the chapters is called This Is Your Captain Speaking because anybody who covered Arsenal in the mid 90 period and traveled abroad with them in the in the in their you know the, when they won the Cup Winners' Cup yeah. in 94 uh, would have seen Tony Adams get on the mic every time uh, the plane was about to take off and he would always start with This Is Your Captain Speaking, let's go and get effing lamped if they'd won. <laughs> uh, and and they did, yeah. and he did. Um, but in 96, after, you know, when he reached the very bottom of the alcoholic spiral, you know, the transformation in him as a person, as a, as a footballer, um, as a human being, I think is remarkable. And there's a, a, there's a chapter that I hope is, that people will realise is, is written with great fondness for Tony. I think he's a, I think he's a fantastic human being. Yeah, I don't yeah. think that Tony Adams of the early 90s would ever found himself in Strictly Come Dancing at one point in his life, would he? He would have probably wandered in drunk, wondered what was going on and thrown up a <laughs> corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Paul, I was just going to ask you, I think one of my main questions actually coming into this today was about was about the book and the TV, like the TV show and how the two are linked. Because with a TV show, you've only got so many hours to, to fill. So I think it was like three or four hours that they had on, yeah, the, three, on the television. The, the, the three hours, three, yeah. Three, three one-hour episodes, yeah. Yeah, so... You know, at the time, you know what sort of social media is like these days. You were getting, you know, uh, Norwich fans saying, "Well, what about us? What about that time we finished third? Or you had Aston Villa fans saying, "What about that time we finished second or we won the league cup? Or is there sort of little bits of that in there as yeah. well? Yeah, yeah, so there, definitely, there, there, there definitely is. I'm not. Listen, I'd be, I'd be a liar if I sat there and said there was chapter after chapter. Uh, of course, Norwich, no. Norwich and Aston Villa, but there is yeah. a recognition. There's absolutely yeah. a recognition. Uh, for what those clubs, what those clubs achieved, how they, how they rattled, the uh, how they rattled the sort of established mm. um, big teams or the big big what were they the big six big as it four, were complete, yeah the big, complete well they were the two they were the two Liverpool teams the two uh, Manchester United um, Arsenal and Tottenham I suppose Arsenal yeah. and Tottenham so big big five, five I guess. Yeah. Um, they were the they were the the chairman and the owners that that led the led the break led yeah. the breakaway from the football league to uh, the the Premier League, but they were rattled and and Blackburn rattled them. You know, mm. say in the book they're almost in the record books the Rothmans as we would have called it, and I still do. Yeah. Um, an asterisk next to Blackburn Rovers title win, um, which is saying. This will, this was basically will never happen again, because yeah. Arsenal, uh, Manchester United, Liverpool realised that they'd been outspent by Jack Walker, who at the time was worth an astonishing three hundred and sixty million pounds. You know that wouldn't, I don't think that would even put him in the in the top twenty of richest owners uh, in the country now. Um, but it was an astonishing amount of money. Uh, and he and he ploughed it in, and he redeveloped Ewood Park, and he brought great players. He appointed a great manager in Kenny Dalglish, and a, an even better assistant in Ray Harford. Um, and basically, 
Manchester United decided that they and and Liverpool and Arsenal decided that they would never let that happen again. And and it wasn't until Chelsea, it wasn't until Chelsea came along under Abramovich that anything did shake the uh, the, the the established elite. Yeah, I always ask this question to, to footballers when we've had them on, but it'd be interesting to get your take on it, given you've literally written the book on it. What what was the biggest change, do you think, in that period that, for football? Because I always say, like, if you take a snapshot from 1990 and then 1999, football is so different, probably to any other decade as well. What, for you, do you think were the, the massive catalyst for that change during that period? Crikey, that is a very wide-ranging question, Ash. Um, <laughs> Let me think. I mean, it would it would be very glib just to say money. Yeah. Um, but that is the root of it. Uh, you know, I think the three the 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 three fee key figures of the um, of the night of the nineties era are uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, Alan Shearer, and Rupert Murdoch. Yes. Just transform. Just transform. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna if you ask me, and I'm gonna put my Sort of reporter's hat on it's just access uh, in in the early 90s like 1988 when i joined the south london press wimbledon's training ground was at the bottom of the a3 near kingston and it was quite honestly and quite literally um a cafe uh that truck drivers would park up and go and get a bacon bay yeah. and it was called richard the richardson evans memorial park um, and it wasn't owned by the club, obviously. It was a transport calf, and you would have truckers uh, sitting in there, eating their bacon butter in a cup of tea next to Dennis Wise, Vinnie, uh, Vinnie Jones, Laurie Sanchez, John Fashionu, those kind of people, Terry Gibson. And I could go down there any time. You could just walk into the training ground, sit down next to the players, chat with them, have a cup of tea, um, watch training. Nobody stopped you. Okay, Press conferences were slightly more organised, but as the local reporter, I could go down. Exactly the same at West Ham. If When I joined the News of the World in 92, you know, you'd go down to Chadwell Heath, to the training ground, walk into the sort of players, uh, I was going to say cafeteria, but it wasn't even as grand as a cafeteria. <laughs> it was just a, it was just a, a, a kitchen yeah. with a side. And there was a big pot of tea and you could get a bacon sandwich. You'd go and say, see Harry Redknapp. And he said, oh, boys, come in, sit down, have a, have, a, uh, have a bite to eat. I'll see you after training. Then we'd go out and we could watch training. And the players were accessible. You know, after games, you know, there were, there were, three, there were three, rule, three rules of being a, um, a, a reporter back then. You had to, it was, you, you had to have 100 words a minute shorthand. Um, and you had to not mind, or two rules really, had to not mind hanging around car parks after the matches because you would just wait next to the players' car and they would come up and you got to know all the players' cars and when you came out, they would just stand and chat. And yeah. it, there was nothing formulaic about, uh, about the press and press conferences. There was no, I can't, thinking back, even 95, 6, there really wasn't that many press officers. Mm, yeah. England had England had a sort of press a press uh, team, um, but it was just the accessibility, and you got to know the players. And no, we weren't falling around drunk with them like they were reporters were probably in the sixties and seventies. But you knew them, you know. Yeah. You could just go up and chat to them and say, "How are you doing?" And even even you weren't interviewing; they would just just come up and talk. You know, yeah. it was. 
And that, I think, if you look between that and then the 10-year period between 90 and 99, that kind of access, that kind of relationship building ability became lost. And I really, really feel sorry for younger reporters now um, that they, they don't have that ability just to sit and chat with people from football, be it yeah. managers, coaches, players, kit men, masseurs, you know? They were, just, they, they, they were the kind of people that you got your best stories off, the kit men. Really? And you check it out and it was bang and it was bang on the money. So yeah, you built those kind of relationships. That I think that is that's the saddest thing that was lost. Yeah, Paul, I've got a quick question for you on that then. Your um in terms of your reporting career, um in the where you say joined South London Press uh, late eighties, you're in your early twenties at that stage, based on what you've told us. You're, you're yeah, I was twenty one, twenty two, yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of, you know, you're you're new into it and et cetera, et cetera. How did as as that moves into the nineties, how did the older generation of press reporters take to there being less access so you've talked about how you could just walk into a cafe how did someone 10 20 even 30 i suppose at that time yeah. years old older than you how did they take that transition did they did they did the, was it just kind of that's the way it was or did they was it a bit of a a bit of a touchy subject yeah it was uh it was there were I, i've witnessed some some rare old rows uh, with people like experienced reporters who knew players being stopped from mm. talking to them uh, because some press officer didn't like it. Now, listen, I'm a poacher turned gamekeeper. I'm now in the, in the media consultancy business. So I sometimes think, Oh yeah, we don't, you know, I, I would advise not to speak or whatever, but back as a reporter access and building relationships and contacts are just the key to the game and yeah i think the older generation found it difficult um but the beauty is that they had grown up with a bit like myself now you you you're seeing players that you saw as young kids who are now managers so they maintained contact so okay they weren't talking to 22 year old players but they were yeah. to, they they knew their managers because they'd grown up with them as 22-year-olds, perhaps 20 years ago. Yeah. So good reporters will, will always get will always find a, a way to get a story. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was difficult. I think it was very difficult. I found I found it difficult when I when I began being stopped from you know lurking around car parks <laughs> and being told no that you have to buy security people. No, you have to get out before the players came. And you go, why? I, you know, a year ago I was chatting with whoever next to his car. Um, and getting a line for, you know, whether it was for the Monday morning or the, 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 my, my, my Saturday match report for the News of the World. Do you think exposure has a lot to do that as well? Because obviously, as you mentioned, Rupert Murdoch's Sky came in because you talk the early 90s. It was really only newspapers and the occasional TV show on terrestrial TV that we saw these players. Whereas when Sky came yeah. in, they bought more coverage. They, they eventually bought a 24 News channel do you, do you think that's what, what the, where the press office came in because of sky's massive influence uh, yeah i mean i would never ever ever criticize sky i think they have been fantastic for english football i think they are the benchmark of every element of sports uh sports television coverage um in the you know currently going on um so i would never criticize sky no i think it was control i think the clubs wanted to control uh, their players more. I 
think I think um, I think agents came in and wanted to control access. So no, I wouldn't blame I wouldn't blame Sky at all. I think Sky have done a fantastic job. I think Sky's uh, early coverage from '92 revolutionised the way football was covered, packaged, and delivered. I think I think Sky have been nothing but fantastic for uh, and without without Sky we wouldn't be where we are today in terms of the Premier League having the might and power that it has around the world. Yeah. I, I was signings as well, because when you talk about, like, we were on this show before, we talk about the guys like Jürgen Klinsmann and Dennis Berg <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the Cantona effect as well. I mean, that, that was also kind of how the Premier League became this global force, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, Alan Shearer talks about when, uh, when Blackburn won the title, we couldn't, other than Robbie Slater and Henning Berg, he couldn't think of any other foreign players in the Blackburn dressing room. Mm. Um, that's, you know, that's been tr- transformative. You know, when Bergkamp came, uh, when Cantona arrived, when Gianfranco Zola, I think it was 97, 98, he arrived at Chelsea, transformed Chelsea and the attitude and the mindset of Chelsea players. Uh, I just think that, uh, yeah, the foreign influence has been has been astonishing in terms of professionalism, in terms of just the brilliance that they've brought to the um, the brilliance that they've brought to the Premier League. You know, Thierry Henry, uh, you think of more as a, a player from the 2000s. Um, but my God, what a player, what a fantastic, astonishingly great player. You know, even, you know, some of the, some of the lesser known or, you know, lesser lights, that have come in, you know, I mean, remember Ray Harford saying we should buy more Scandinavians at Blackburn because they are so professional. They know how to live their lives right. They have great habits. And that has a, you know, we're talking about trickle down economics in the country at the moment, but that has a trickle down effect in the dressing room. You know, players look at and think, oh, why is he so fit? Why is he not getting injuries? Why can he play from the first minute to the 91st minute? And it's because of the professionalism that foreign players brought into the game. Now, don't get me wrong; there was a fair few who liked a good drink and a tear up, but they were uh, they were probably outnumbered by um, peers who were far more professional in their attitude, and that, and that that transformed the English game as well. Talking about your career as well, like you've mentioned bits of it already at South London Press, News of the World. You went to Express, was it in the in the mid nineties as well? What? Yeah. What highlights do you look back on and that you enjoyed as part of your job? Because you know we all, you know, I've, I've, I'm an editor myself. I've dabbled in some journal. I'm not to the extent of your career, but we live a, a, a blessed career, and we have those. Oh, it's magnificent. What, what, what's the uh, stands out for you? I, I mean, John Dillon, who is a, a, a peer of mine, always said it's the uh, it's the only job you can do without leaving the school playground. <laughs> that's, that's a good that's a good analogy i like that yeah. talk, just talking just talking about football all the time immersing yourself in football yeah. all the time uh just traveling around the world some of the great places that i was able that was very very privileged to go to world cups european championships champions league finals um what do i remember oh there, there's a there is there's a part of it's there's a chapter in the book about david beckham and listen, those people who know me will be absolutely sick to the back teeth of hearing this story. But you talk about the access, the access and the friendships that you build. I left the Express in 1996 to do, uh, to go to, no, I left the, sorry, I left the News of the World 
in 96 to go to the Express, uh, at the Sunday Express at the time, and then it became a seven-day operation. I joined too late to be able to go to the uh, infamous um, China-Hong Kong trip right, with yeah, England. Yeah, right. So but almost, as, yeah, a, yeah. almost as, a, as a sop, they sent, the Express sent me to uh, cover the Toulon tournament and the under-21s in 96 and where uh where david beckham was the captain and i went from 96 then i went on to rome for the champions league final between ajax and juventus uh viali and ravenelli's last game for uh, yeah. for juventus um down in a, 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 a and it was listen it was the softest softest job i've ever had it was a uh, uh working for a sunday title in toulon was just the easiest job in the world. And they said even better, listen, um, as uh, almost as a golden hello, bring your missus. And uh, my daughter at the time was a couple of years, two years old. She was born in 94. Yeah, she'd have been two. At the time I was trying, uh, I'd been sourced with the task of ghosting Rude Hullet's columns for Euro 96. Mm -hmm. And I could not get hold of him for love nor <laughs> <laughs> he was the most a most elusive six foot four bloke that you'd ever met. Um, I couldn't 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 get him on the phone. I couldn't track him down. I'd be speaking to his agent, his English agent, who couldn't track him down. It was before I had a mobile phone. Um, so basically, I was stuck in my room a lot in my in my hotel in Toulon, just bashing the phone, trying to get trying to get hold of uh, trying to get hold of rude rude bloody Hullet. Um so that left my wife um, and two-year-old daughter lying around the pool most of the time. And listen, you know, my daughter was very, very well behaved, I like to think. But as a two-year-old, with just my wife having to look after her, it, it was a bit, she was, it was a handful. Yeah. Until one day, David Beckham and Ben Thornley, who were both in, the, um, in Manchester United and under-21 uh, squad, came up to my wife, Lisa, and said, uh, listen, Lisa, I know Paul is um, stuck in his room working. Do you mind if do you want us to look after your daughter, Sophie, um, for, the, for, for the day? <laughs> yes, was the obvious answer. <laughs> David, Beckham, David Beckham and Ben Thornley looked after my daughter for the day. They bought her ice cream. <laughs> they played in the pool with her. They threw the ball around with her. They just, for like th two or three hours, they were just fantastic and you know uh then my daughter couldn't go to bed until she'd given david and ben a kiss each night uh, <laughs> <laughs> david um this was before he'd met uh victoria um was having a um bit of a torrid time with a girlfriend back home um and using the phone in the room a lot to to speak to her and it got to the point where at the end of the tournament, the FA refused, his, his telephone bill was so big that the FA refused to um, pay it. <laughs> so, so myself and Rob Shepard, who was also covering the tournament, paid David Beckham's telephone bill um, because we could just put it on expenses and uh, he didn't have enough money to, um, or he didn't have wow. enough cash to cover it. So, so yeah, when you look back at that term, the, that, 
in terms of access, this was before David scored the, the, the goal from the halfway line. He did that, I think, in the this was in the June. He scored yeah. that goal in August and his, his life was transformed and changed. But is your, um, sorry, Paul, does your daughter now sort of say, like, David Beckham used to be my babysitter? Yeah, that? I was going to ask that. Yeah. <laughs> I suspect she has dined out many times yeah. on her David, Be- uh, David, uh, David Beckham was my babysitter. Story. And why not? <laughs> and yeah, I, I kissed David Beckham before Victoria. <laughs> Brilliant! I love well, yeah, that. Yeah, so so those kind of those kind of times were, and they they were they they they're just impossible to to have. Uh, you know, just traveling on the same flights as the England players, sitting next to them, they would come up, and you know, I remember Gianluca Vialli when he joined Chelsea when he would fly, uh, he would come back to the back of the flight to the back of the plane and have a cigarette at the back of the plane with the reporters. Um, you know. Secretly, so that the uh, so that whoever the manager was at the time, Hullet, I think, well, Hullet didn't mind a cigarette either, but um, Hoddle or whoever it was wasn't, you know, wasn't able to see him having a crafty uh, oily at the back of the plane. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I've got a question about you. You mentioned you touched upon briefly there that you've worked at World Cups, um, yeah. and World Cups has. You know, I haven't, I haven't had uh, the the, uh, the. I'm fortunate enough to actually attend one myself yet. That is uh, hopefully on my uh, to do list, uh, especially one in America. Um, it's it's about the fact that if you're working at a World Cup, obviously you, you say you'd you never leave the playground, but do you do you get to experience it in the same way a fan has, or do you think you're you're working and it's actually quite stressful because you've got to you've got to get your reports in very quickly and there's a lot of in a four week period it's probably very intense. Yeah, it's probably nearer six weeks because the right. will up and and the and the and the squad will probably go out ten days or so before the uh, before the World Cup. I think in this day and age, I think the pressure and the intensity of social media, yes. 24-7 news, makes it. I think it makes it impossible to enjoy it like we do. You know, we, uh, 98, I had a mobile phone. That was the first tournament I had a mobile phone phone for uh, out in France. Now, I I always, always, I said to, when I was at News, when I was at the sports editor at the News of the World, I would say to reporters, enjoy this. Enjoy this time. There is, you know, uh, especially working for a Sunday newspaper, where it's not the it's not the day to day news yeah. agenda that you, you you can you can break out and do things differently. Now, I I enjoyed tournaments, really enjoyed tournaments. I loved France '98; it was brilliant. Um, Two thousand and two in Japan was probably I know this again outside the, the scope of the, of the podcast, but but. We would go to, um, because of the time difference, that played in eight hours ahead, so it played in our favour. But I remember we, England were based in um, in Japan, in Kobe, and there was a, ridiculously, everywhere in the world, I guess there is one, there was an Irish bar, and it became sort of <laughs> yes. where we would go and watch, our, watch, the reporters would go and watch the matches. And it was absolutely rammed out with Japanese fans and they are out in the streets, especially with Japan who did really well in the, um, who did really well in the tournament and South Korea did even better in the tournament. Um, they were just out in the streets. And I remember once, I can't remember what game it was. It obviously wasn't an England game. Otherwise I'd have been covering it. But I remember in the early hours of the morning in an Irish bar with a little Japanese guy on my shoulders <laughs> around and we both got, we're both having a beer and we're both just loving being in, you know, it was, it was cool. And it's, it, it's, it's absolutely, I think it was, um, 
it was Pete Davis in his book uh, for the 1990 um, World Cup all played out right. where he called it planet football and the World Cup is planet football yeah. and it's, it just has a it has a different dynamic a different energy to anything else that you'll ever experience as a reporter you become immersed in it I think everybody goes a little bit mad at the end of it because you, you've been away for a long time yeah. um, and you have late nights and the pressure of work and you know you'll go out for meals and You'll be exhausted at the end of it. But it's fantastic. Tournaments are just incredible. Japan 2002, Germany 2006, France 98, World Cups that were just World Cups and European, yeah, yeah, World Cups. European Championships as well were, were good, although England never, apart from 96, never seemed to do anything. Um, so, while I was covering them at least. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure it's the same now. I think there's an intensity of pressure a yeah. demand that probably has taken, sapped a little bit of the joy and the fun out of it for reporters, from what I hear anyway. Do you think when they split the tour, because I, I read yesterday that Ukraine might get with Spain, yeah. I mean, that's going to take, like you say, because I always think a World Cup is a bubble, isn't it? I think that's not going to, that's going to be different yeah. with reporters being all over. Well, then, yeah, having said that, having said that, they split it in Japan and, and, yeah, and Korea. And, and, and that was amazing, being in Seoul for South Korea, South Korea games was just incredible, just magnificent. So, yeah, I understand what you say, but even um, even in the European Championships when they fit it between Belgium and Holland, yeah, I think yeah. I think if you can travel easily between, yeah, 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 yeah. it's fine. I think having it, you know, split across Europe like it was last time was nah. it, it didn't feel it didn't feel like a cohesive tournament to me. No, I agree. I would agree with that um, totally. Um, Paul, I've got uh, Eng England. I'm sort of fascinated with the with the press and the relationship that they have with the England football team. Um, yeah. So you've obviously covered uh, you've obviously covered England um, at World Cups and yeah. friendlies and and no doubt you know the summer tournaments and what have you. Um, there's two things that always sort of fascinate me with with the press in England. And if we go back to the 90s, um, the documentary for um, with Graham Taylor. Impossible job, thank you. The um, yeah, it's fantastic, and and the, the the press are portrayed in a certain way in that documentary, um, rightly or wrongly, and we'll come on to that in a second. And the other bit that always fascinates me with the England football team to this day is the fact that about seven hours before kickoff, we all know what the starting eleven is going to be, even before it's announced by the FA, and it's how that, I mean, how that gets out. Um, I'm interested in really, if I'm honest with you. So going back to 1990, after uh, no, it was. So when would that have been with Graham? 92, yeah, 92, 93. Yeah, I was qualifying for the World Cup, wasn't it? So yeah. Was yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so probably probably finished in 93, didn't it? You have to remember at that time it was a brutal circulation war between the Sun and the Mirror, mm -hmm. and really. Uh, that's what drove that kind of coverage. Everybody was after the big story. Brian Warno sadly passed away, was the chief football writer for The Sun. Um, brilliant story getter. Harry Harris, different kind of reporter, but again, the brilliant story. And they were battling each other. The Sun and the Mirror were battling each other. In the middle, you had the Mail and the Express and the Times and all the other nationals who were... And it was a, a really... I came into it about that time. I started covering England about that time and I was still pretty raw. And um, it was just the most febrile atmosphere. 
And there was still access to players. Players were still signed up for columns with individual papers. Uh, you know, I think Gary, in 1990, Gary Lineker was a columnist for The Sun. It would be unheard of these, these days. Um, and it was a real battle. And, and Graham, unfortunately, got caught in the middle of that. And I really loved Graham. I think he was a fantastic man. And he brought in his the first spin doctor. I can't remember his name now. But he, but he, he I remember he, at one press conference, he put an alarm clock on there. And it was... Uh, and he st started singing Buddy Holly songs because he'd been advised, oh, misery, misery, what's to become of me? And it just made it a bear pit. And it was just weird, a, a, a really strange, ferocious atmosphere. I think that's changed. That's changed a lot. How does the team get out? Well, what do they say in football? There's, there's only... There's, there's only one way of keeping a secret. That's if two people know, only two people know it, and one of them's dead. <laughs> because agents yeah. I mean famously when Matt Letizier when Matt Letizier um, uh, was playing I think for England in Ireland um, the son got the story because they phoned up Matt Letizier's brother and said do you know if Matt's in the team and they went oh yeah he is yeah yeah he's oh, right yeah but agents leak and yeah. Listen, there, there are there are so many there are so many ways, so many contacts, so many different avenues to explore of getting the team out, and yeah. that doesn't always include what we used to do sometimes down at um, the England training camp at Bisham Abbey, which was hide in a uh, hide in a tree so we could spot how Hoddle or um, Terry Venables was setting up the team. So, um, so we we would uh, yeah we. The, you have you 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 have to um, you have to be creative in the way you get the team and uh, yeah so, uh, to confirm so many, so many people know because <laughs> if if a player phones his agent or his family or um, anybody else and says oh, I'm in the team tomorrow I've been picked you know that's why why not just be open I mean yeah. I, every manager talking about the Premier League now every manager knows how the opposition team are going to line up yeah. So there's there are no there are no there are no secrets. So yeah. I've always this this compulsion to hide. Like Glenn Hoddle was the worst, really. In oh, we mustn't let it slip. Or oh, Kevin Keegan as well. You know, Kevin Keegan in um, the last game when he was going to play um, Gareth Southgate as a holding midfielder against Germany in the last game at the Old Wembley, uh, which you know Didier Mam scored and we we were we were out, um, basically out, and Keegan quit in the toilets. The, the the night before, and this was a sadly missed, hold the back page, which transformed into the Sunday supplement. Yeah, I remember the back that. page was, like, in the 90s, was journalists sitting around in a darkened studio at Sky's headquarters at Isleworth. Then the back pages would come in about 10 o'clock. And story had leaked that uh, Southgate was playing in midfield. And Kevin Keegan phoned David Davis, who was the, who was the head of, director of comms at the FA at the time, and said, get, get the programme taken off air. They're going to let the Germans know my secret. And you're going, Kevin, they'll know. If the journalists know, then the Germans yeah. will know. Yeah. And yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand. Unless you have got this incredible tactical master plan, you know, why do it? Bobby Robson was once said, yeah, Bobby, why don't you tell the team? And he came in and he put his team down, a uh, piece, piece of paper down, his team sheet down on the on the table and said, um, right, it went one to 11. That's my team. 
we're coming to get you, picked up the paper, got up and walked out. And I thought, brilliant, brilliant. fantastic, yeah. hey, great, great copy, great headlines for us. But yeah. Yeah, what a message to send out. This is my team. We're coming to get you. So I, I find, uh, just to confirm, lost, actually, so you've, uh, you've, you've climbed a tree, uh, just to confirm that you've climbed I've, a tree. I've used a stepladder to get into <laughs> it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, so with uh, you say about naming the team, there's two things, actually, that uh, with that. In in rugby, I think when it comes to like the Six Nations and stuff like that, they announce the team on like the Wednesday before the yeah. game. So it's like, I know it's a different sport, but it's like, well, what what why can they do it and the England manager can't? But, you know, also, I just find that sort of... Cricket, that whole... cricket teams as well. So, yeah, 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 I, mean, I mean, they are different sports. And, and I don't... I, I don't under, I don't understand the I don't understand this manic secrecy around it. And then yeah. to be fair, Gareth has Gareth has loosened things up immensely. Mm, yeah. And I don't think he's overly worried if the team gets out because what's it going to do? It's not it's not going to change his it's not going to change his mind because the team's out there. Um and it's not and it's and it's not gonna be such a secret that the opposition don't know anyway. Mm. Paul, um so I could talk to you all day. So many men. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we could delve into it all day. So, but I appreciate your time and, and speaking to you and going back in the night and stuff. Um, give us a plug on the book, where it's available what, and where, 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 where you can do. Yeah, it's uh, Fever Pitch, um, The Rise of the Premier League, published by Little Brown, available at all good bookshops and obviously some disreputable ones as well. <laughs> um, but but on, on Amazon as well, obviously, that's probably the easiest way to uh, for people to get it. Good stuff. Well, thank you very much. That was such an interesting delve into kind of media in the 90s. It's such a different, you know, social media has changed it completely, isn't it? So it's such a different world. Um, I got, I've, I've said this before, when I used to be a paper boy in that era, in the 90s, I used to be Sky Sports News for my friends because that's how you got the news. It wasn't yeah. on social media. I used to deliver papers, then go to my mates in the playground. <laughs> you never guess. I always remember Marcel Desailly was about to sign for Chelsea and the first yeah. time my friends knew about it is because I'd seen it on the back of whatever paper I was delivering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very different for the detriment. Cause I'm old school as well. You know, I love magazines and newspapers, but this is the world we live in. So thank you very much for taking us back there. Paul has been kind, very kind of you. My pleasure guys. Thanks for the time. Brilliant. Uh, Ed, anything you need to say, let's plug you as well. Let's plug your, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I've got so, uh, so, go, on, go for it. Yeah, so for Paul's benefit, I uh, I run a pub on Twitter which talks about football all day long uh, because during lockdown um, I really needed a pint and uh, <laughs> it was shut. So I thought I'd set up something on Twitter where everybody could just come and talk football. So yeah, that's uh, at Tavern Football. And um, just quickly, I know I know Paul's very pushed for time. I think just to bring it full circle, you covered Wimbledon. Can you just yeah. maybe in a sentence or two just tell us how crazy that actually was? How crazy were the crazy gang? Yeah, pretty damn crazy. Um, setting beds on fire at Kiel University in a pre- on a preseason trip, right. chucking Terry Gibson naked out of the training ground window on the first floor and leaving him naked on the roof. Um, <laughs> I could, I could, and probably should fill a book about it but <laughs> they were just fantastic times Bobby Gould uh Dave Bassett uh, was a bit before my time but Bobby was the manager and was amazing so Dennis Wise um break Bobby's ribs in a training ground fight um and Bobby not show it and then the next day come into training and his ribs are black and blue where the, Dennis has landed a couple of uh, fairly meaty shots yeah just uh just they were fantastic but what I will say is they were a brilliant team as a collection of individuals, not great players as a team. Brilliant. The left back, 
Terry Phelan knew what the right winger Carl Fairweather had to do and how to do it. You know, they were absolutely the most, by a country mile, the most unified and tight-knit team that I've ever seen uh, covering football. Brilliant. Yeah, we'll have to do a Wimbledon episode at some point. Oh, we'll have to. You do have me on. Come in. Yeah, definitely. So, much, definitely. so many stories I've, I've had to keep hidden away. Great. We'll, we'll book <laughs> that in for definitely. Uh, thank you very much again. Um, thank you for listening. This has been Alive and Kick In. I've been Ash Rose. Until next time, keep it 90.